Chapter 7 Motivations to Contentment Let me now propose some things that may serve to both attract and sharpen contentment. Consider these divine motives or reasons that should stimulate you to be content. The first motive to contentment is that it is excellent. Contentment is a flower that doesn't grow in every garden. It teaches a person how, in the midst of need, to abound. You would think it was excellent if I could prescribe a recipe or antidote against poverty, but here is something that is even more excellent for a man to be in need and yet have enough. Only contentment of spirit can bring this. Contentment is a remedy against all our trouble, an alleviation to all our burdens. It is the cure for all our cares. Contentment, though it is not rightly a grace, it is instead a disposition of mind, has in it a happy temperament and mixture of all the graces. It is a most precious compound, made up of faith, patience, meekness, humility, and others, which are the ingredients put into it. Now, there are seven kinds of rare excellencies in contentment. The first excellency is that a contented Christian carries heaven around with him. For what is heaven but that sweet repose and full contentment that the soul has in God? In contentment there are the first fruits of heaven. There are two things in a contented spirit that make it like heaven. One, God is there. Something of God can be seen in that heart. A discontent Christian is like a rough, tempestuous sea. When the water is rough, you can see nothing there, but when it is smooth and serene, then you may see your face in the water. Proverbs 27, 19. When the heart rages through discontent, it is like a rough sea. You can see nothing there, only passion and murmuring. There's nothing of God, nothing of heaven in that heart. But by virtue of contentment, the heart is like the sea when it is smooth and calm. There is a face shining there. You may see something of Christ in that heart, a representation of all the graces. And two, rest is there. Oh, what a Sabbath is kept in a contented heart! What heaven! A contented Christian is like Noah in the ark. Though the ark was tossed with waves, Noah could sit and sing in the ark. The soul that is in the ark of contentment sits quiet and sails above all the waves of trouble. He can sing in this spiritual ark. The wheels of the chariot move, but the axles stay still. The circumference of the heavens is carried around the earth, but the earth does not move out of its center. When we meet with motion and change in the creatures around us, a contented spirit is not stirred nor moved out of its center. The sails of a mill move with the wind, but the mill itself stands still, an emblem of contentment. When our outward condition moves with the wind of providence, the heart remains settled through holy contentment, and when others are like quicksilver shaking and trembling through unrest, the contented spirit can say, as David, O God, my heart is fixed. Psalm 57, 7. What is this but a piece of heaven? The second excellency is that whatever is defective or missing in the creature is made up in contentment. Christians may lack the comforts, the land, and the possessions that others have, but God has instilled into their hearts contentment, which is far better. In this sense, that is true of our Saviour, 
they shall receive an hundredfold. Matthew 19:29. Perhaps those who ventured all for Christ will never have their houses or lands again, but God gives them a contented spirit, and this breeds joy in the soul, joy infinitely sweeter than all their houses and lands that they left for Christ. It was sad regarding David's outward comforts, being driven, as some think, from his kingdom. Yet regarding the sweet contentment he found in God, he had more comfort than men have in the time of harvest and vintage. Psalm 4, 7. One person may have house and lands to live on, and another has nothing, just a small trade. Yet even that brings in a livelihood. A Christian may have little in the world, but he drives the trade of contentment so he knows how to be in need just as well as how to abound. Oh, the rare art, or rather, the miracle of contentment! Wicked people are often anxious in the enjoyment of all things. The contented Christian is well in the lack of all things. But how does a Christian come to be contented in the deficiency of outward comforts? A Christian finds contentment in the promises of God. He is poor in purse, but rich in promise. There is one promise that brings sweet contentment into the soul They that seek the Lord shall not want, lack, any good thing. Psalm 34, 10. If the thing we desire is good for us, we will have it. If it is not good, then the not having is good for us. Resting satisfied with the promise gives contentment. The third excellency is that contentment tunes us to serve God. It oils the wheels of the soul and makes it more agile and nimble. It composes the heart and makes it fit for prayer and meditation. How can he that is in a frenzy of grief or discontent attend upon the Lord without distraction? 1 Corinthians 7.35 Contentment prepares and tunes the heart. First you prepare the viol and wind up the strings before you play a bit of music. When a Christian's heart is wound up to this heavenly frame of contentment, then it is fit for duty. A discontented Christian is like Saul when the evil spirit came on him. Oh, what clashing and discord he makes in prayer! When an army is put into disorder, then it is not fit for battle. When our thoughts are scattered and distracted about the cares of this life, we are not fit for devotion. Discontent takes the heart from wholly focusing on God and fixes it instead on the present trouble, so that our minds are not on our prayer but on our cross. Discontent dismembers the soul and makes it impossible for a Christian to go steadily and cheerfully in God's service. How lame is his devotion! The discontented person gives God only half, and his religion is nothing but bodily exercise. It lacks a soul to animate it. David would not offer to God what cost him nothing. 2 Samuel 24, 24. Where there is too much worldly care, there is too little spiritual cost in our service. The discontented person does his duties by halves. He is just like Ephraim, a cake not turned. Hosea 7, 8. He is a cake baked on one side. He gives God the outside, but not the spiritual part. His heart is not in his service. He is baked on one side, but the other side is dough. What profit is there in such raw, improper services? He that gives God only the skin of worship 
can only expect the shell of comfort. Contentment brings the heart into frame and composes our soul. Only then do we give God the flower and spirits of our service. Then a Christian's heart is intent and serious. There are some duties that we cannot perform as we ought without contentment. 1. We cannot rejoice in God if we are discontent. How can he rejoice who is discontent? He is more fit for complaining than rejoicing. 2. Without contentment, we cannot be thankful for mercy. Can a discontented person be thankful? He can be fretful, but not thankful. And 3. A discontent person cannot justify God's actions. How can he who is discontented with his condition do this? Ezra 9.13. He will be more likely to censure God's wisdom than to vindicate his justice. Oh, how excellent is contentment that prepares and, as it were, strings the heart for service. Indeed, contentment makes our duties not only light and agile, but also acceptable. It is this that puts beauty and worth into them, for contentment settles the soul. Now, you can make nothing of milk when it is being stirred, but if you let it settle a while, it then turns to cream. When the heart is stirred with anxiety and discontent, you can make nothing of those duties. How thin, how fleeting, how dry they are! But when the heart is settled by holy contentment, now there is some worth in our duties. Now they turn to cream. The fourth excellency is that contentment is the spiritual arch or pillar of the soul. It prepares us to bear burdens. He whose heart is ready to sink under the smallest sin, by virtue of contentment, has a spirit that is invincible under suffering. A contented Christian is like chamomile, the more it is walked on, the more it grows. As medicines work disease out of the body, so contentment works trouble out of the heart. It argues, If I am under reproach, God can vindicate me. If I am in need, God can relieve me. Ye shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water. 2 Kings 3.17 Holy contentment keeps the heart from fainting. In the autumn, when the fruit and leaves are blown off the trees, there is still sap in the root. When there is an autumn on our external happiness and the leaves of our estate drop off, there is still the sap of contentment in the heart. A Christian still has life inwardly when his outward comforts do not blossom. The contented heart is never out of heart. Contentment is a golden shield that beats back discouragement. Humility is like the lead to the fishing net, which keeps the soul down when it is rising through passion, and contentment is like the cork which keeps the heart up when it is sinking through discouragement. Contentment is the great support prop. It's like the beam that bears whatever weight is laid on it. No, it's like a rock that breaks the waves. It is strange to observe the same affliction lying on two men, how differently they carry themselves under it. The contented Christian is like Samson, who carried away the gates of a city on his back. Judges 16, 3. He can go away with his cross cheerfully and makes nothing of it. The other is like Issachar, Couching down under his burden. Genesis 49 14.
The reason is that one man is discontent, and that breeds fainting. Discontent expands the grief, and grief breaks the heart. When this sacred sinew of contentment begins to shrink, we limp under our afflictions. We don't know what burdens God may exercise us with, so we need to preserve contentment. As our contentment is, such will be our courage. With his five stones and his sling, David defied Goliath and overcame him. Get contentment into the sling of your heart, and with this sacred stone you may both defy the world and conquer it. You may break those afflictions that otherwise would break you. The fifth excellency of contentment is that it prevents many sins and temptations. First, it prevents many sins. Where contentment is lacking, there is no lack of sin. Discontent with our condition is a sin that does not just follow along, but is like the first link of the chain that draws all the other links along with it. In particular, there are two sins that contentment prevents, impatience and complaining. Discontent and impatience are twins. This evil is of the Lord, what should I wait for the Lord any longer? 2 Kings 6.33, as if God were bound to give us the mercy just when we desire it. Impatience is no small sin, as you will see if you consider from where it comes. It comes from a lack of faith. Faith gives the right idea of God. It is an intelligent grace. It believes that God's wisdom tempers and His love sweetens all ingredients. This works patience. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? John 18.11. Impatience is the daughter of infidelity. If a patient has an ill opinion of the physician and imagines that he comes to poison him, he will take none of his prescriptions. When we have a prejudice against God and the idea that he comes to kill us and undo us, then we storm and cry out like a foolish man, it's Chrysostom's simile, take off the bandage, though it is necessary for the cure. Is it not better that the bandage irritates a little than the wound festers and never heals? Impatience is from a lack of love for God. We will bear rebuke from those we love not only patiently but also thankfully. Love thinketh no evil, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. It puts the fairest and most candid gloss on the actions of a friend. Love will cover the multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4, 8. If it were possible for God in the least manner to err, which would be blasphemy to think, then love would cover that error. Love sees everything in the best light. It makes us bear any blow. It endureth all things, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. If we loved God, we would have patience. Impatience is due to a lack of humility. An impatient person was never humbled under the burden of sin. He who studies his sins, the numberless number of them, how they are twisted together and accented with sadness, is patient and says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. The greater noise drowns the lesser. When the sea roars, the rivers are still. He who thinks long about his sin is both silent and amazed. He wonders why it is not worse with him. 
How great is this sin of impatience! And how excellent is contentment, a counterweight against this sin! The contented Christian, believing that God does everything in love, is patient and does not have one word to say unless to justify God. The second sin that contentment prevents is murmuring and complaining. This sin is a degree higher than impatience. Murmuring is quarreling with God and raging against Him. The people spake against God. Numbers 21 5. If you interpret what the murmurer says, he is saying that God has not dealt well with him and that he deserved better from him. The murmurer charges God with folly. This is the language, or rather the blasphemy, of a murmuring spirit. God should have been a wiser and better God. The murmurer is a mutineer. The Israelites are called in the same text both murmurers and rebels, Numbers 17.10, and is not rebellion just like the sin of witchcraft? You who are a murmurer are in the account of God the same as a witch, a sorcerer, as one who deals with the devil. This is a sin of the first magnitude. Murmuring often ends in cursing. Micah's mother began cursing when the talents of silver were taken away. Judges 17, 2, and so does the murmurer when a part of his estate is taken away. Our murmuring is the devil's music. This is the sin that God cannot bear. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? Numbers 14, 27. It is a sin that sharpens the sword against a people. It is a land-destroying sin. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. 1 Corinthians 10.10 This sin is ripening. Without mercy it will hasten our nation's funerals. How excellent, then, is contentment which prevents this sin! To be content and yet murmur is only half right. A content Christian accepts his present condition and does not murmur. He instead admires. Here is the excellency of contentment. It is a spiritual antidote against sin. Contentment prevents many temptations. Discontent is a devil that is always tempting. It sets people onto deviant methods. Those who are poor and discontent will attempt anything. They will go to the devil for riches. Those who are proud and discontent will hang themselves as Ahithophel did when his counsel was rejected. 2 Samuel 17.23 Satan takes great advantage of discontent. He loves to fish in these troubled waters. Discontent both eclipses reason and weakens faith, and it is Satan's strategy to break over the hedge where it is weakest. Discontent makes a breach in the soul. And usually at this breach the devil enters by a temptation and storms the soul. How easily can the devil, by his logic, dispute a discontent Christian into sin? He forms an argument like this He who is in need must save himself. You are now in need, therefore, you ought to try to save yourself. To make good his conclusion, he tempts to the forbidden fruit, not distinguishing between what is needed and what is lawful. What? he says, you don't have a livelihood? Never be such a fool as to starve. Take advantage of every opportunity, whether it's good or bad. Eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. 
Proverbs 4.17. You see how the discontent person is prey to that sad temptation to steal and take God's name in vain. Contentment is a shield against temptation, for he who is content knows as well how to be in need as to abound. He will not sin to get a living. Even though his food and supplies may run low, he is content. He lives as the birds of the air on God's providence and does not doubt that he will have enough to pay for his passage to heaven. Discontent also tempts us to atheism and apostasy. Discontent asks, if there is a God to take care of things here below, would he allow those who have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts to be in need? Malachi 3.14. Throw off Christ's garments, abandon religion. Job's wife, being discontent with her condition, said to her husband, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Job 2.9. It was as if she had said, Do ye not see, Job, what has become of all your religion? You fear God and shun evil. Job 1.8. But how are you better off? Look how God turns his hand against you. He has struck you in your body, your possessions, and your family, and you still retain your integrity? What? You are still devout? You still weep and pray to him? You fool, throw off religion. Do not believe in God. This was a painful temptation that the devil handed over to Job by his discontented wife. Only God's grace, as a golden shield, warded off the blow from his heart. Thou speakest as one of the foolish women. Job 2.10. The discontented person asks, What profit is it to serve the Almighty? Those who never trouble themselves about religion are the prosperous ones, and I, in the meanwhile, am in need. I might as well give up this religion, if this is all my reward. This is a distressing temptation, and it often prevails. Atheism is the fruit that grows out of the blossom of discontent. Oh, see the excellency of contentment! It repels this temptation. If God be mine, says the contented spirit, it is enough. Even though I have no property or possessions, his smile makes heaven. His love is better than wine. Song of Solomon 1 2. The gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim is better than the vintage of Abiezer. Judges 8 2. I have few possessions, but much hope. My income is scant, but his promise is eternal life. I am persecuted by malice, but better is persecuted godliness than prosperous wickedness. Divine contentment is a spiritual antidote against both sin and temptation. The sixth excellency of contentment is that it sweetens every condition. Christ turned the water into wine, and contentment turns the waters of Mara into spiritual wine. Exodus 15.23. Do I only have a little? It's more than I deserve or can dispute. This small quantity is the result of mercy. It is the fruit of Christ's blood. It is the legacy of free grace. A small present sent from a king is highly valued. This little I have is with a good conscience. It is not stolen waters. Proverbs 9.17. Guilt has not muddied or poisoned it. It runs pure. This little is a pledge of more. This bit of bread is a guarantee of the bread that I will eat in the kingdom of God. This little water in the bottle is a guarantee of the heavenly nectar that will be distilled from the true vine. 
Will I bear some crosses? My comfort is, if they are heavy, I do not have far to go. I will carry my cross to Golgotha, and there I will leave it. My cross is light compared to the weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17. Has God taken away my comforts? It is well, the comforter still abides. Thus, contentment, like a honeycomb, drops sweetness into every condition. Discontent is a leaven that sours every comfort. It puts bitterness on the breast of the creature. It lessens every mercy. It triples every cross. But the contented spirit sucks sweetness from every flower of providence. It can make poison into sweet syrup. Contentment is full of consolation. Contentment has another excellency, a seventh one. It is the best commentator on providence. It makes a fair interpretation of all God's dealings. Contentment construes even the darkest and bloodiest providence of God in the best sense. I may say of it, as the apostle of charity, it thinketh no evil. Contentment says that sickness is God's furnace to refine his gold and make it sparkle even more. The prison is a chapel or house of prayer. What if God melts away my body and earthly things from me? Perhaps he saw that my heart grew too much in love with them. If I had stayed too long in that fat pasture, I would have gorged to excess, and the better my estate was, the worse my soul would have been. God is wise. He has done this either to prevent some sin or to exercise some grace. What a blessed frame of heart this is! A contented Christian is an advocate for God against unbelief and impatience. Discontent, however, takes everything from God in the worst sense. It accuses and censures God. This evil, I feel, is a symptom of greater evil. God is about to undo me. The Lord has brought us here into the wilderness to kill us. The contented soul takes everything well, and when his condition is as bad as it can be, he can say, Truly, God is good. Psalm 73, 1. The second motivation to contentment is that Christians already have that which may make them content. Hasn't God given you Christ? In Him there are unsearchable riches. Ephesians 3, 8. He is such a golden mine of wisdom and grace that all the saints and angels could never dig to the bottom. Seneca said to his friend Polybius, Never complain of your hard fortune as long as Caesar is your friend. So I say to a believer, Never complain as long as Christ is your friend. He is an enriching pearl, a sparkling diamond. The infinite luster of his merits makes us shine in God's eyes. Ephesians 1 6 7. In him there are both fullness and sweetness. He is unspeakably good. Raise up your thoughts to the highest pinnacle, stretch them to the farthest distance, let them range to their full latitude and extent. They will still fall infinitely short of these indescribable and inexhaustible treasures that are locked up in Jesus Christ. Is that not enough to give the soul contentment? A Christian who lacks necessities but has Christ has the one thing that is necessary. Luke 10:42. Your soul is exercised and enameled with the graces of the Spirit. Is that not enough to give contentment? Grace is of a divine birth. It is the new planting. 
It is the flower of the heavenly paradise, the embroidery of the Spirit, the seed of God. 1 John 3 9. It is the sacred anointing. 1 John 2 27. It is Christ's portrait in the soul. It is the very foundation on which the framework of glory is laid. Grace is of infinite value. Faith is a jewel. It is aptly called precious faith. 2 Peter 1 1. What is love but a divine sparkle in the soul? A soul beautified with grace is like a room richly hung with tapestries or the firmament dressed with glittering stars. These are the true riches, Luke 16, 11, which cannot exist with condemnation. Is there not enough here to give the soul contentment? All other things are like the wings of a butterfly. They are curiously painted, but they defile our fingers. Earthly riches, said Augustine, are full of poverty. Indeed they are, for they cannot enrich the soul. Often under silken apparel there is a threadbare soul. They are corruptible. Riches are not forever, as the wise man said, Proverbs 27:24. Heaven is a place where gold and silver will not go. A believer is rich toward God, Luke 12:21. Why then are you discontent? Has not God given you that which is better than the world? What does it matter if He doesn't give you the box if He gives you the jewel? What if He denies you pennies if He pays you with a better coin? He gives you gold, spiritual mercies. What if the water in the bottle is gone? You have enough in the fountain. Those who have God's fullness have no need to complain of the world's emptiness. David said, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. Psalm 16, 5 so let the chips fall where they may. In a sickbed or a prison, I will say, I have landed in a pleasant place. Yes, I have a pleasing and substantial heritage. Are you not heir to all the promises? Do you not have the promise of heaven? When you let go of your natural life, are you not sure of eternal life? Has God not given you the pledge and first fruits of glory? Is this not enough? To work the heart to contentment. The third argument for contentment is that if we are not content, we contradict our own prayers. We pray, Thy will be done, Matthew 6 10, but it is the will of God that we are in such a condition. He has decreed it, and He sees it best for us. Why then do we murmur and are discontented by that which we pray for? Either we are not earnest in our prayer, which proves hypocrisy, or we contradict ourselves, which proves folly. The fourth motivation to be content is that when we are content, God has what He intended, and Satan misses His intent. 1. God has His intention and end. God's intention in all His providence is to bring the heart to submit and be content. Indeed, this pleases God very much. He loves to see his children satisfied with the portion that he shapes and allots them. It contents him to see us contented. When we acquiesce in God's providence, God has what he intended. And two, Satan misses his intent. The devil, though with God's permission, struck Job in his body and estate in order to perplex his mind. He afflicted Job's body on purpose so that he might upset his spirit. 
He hoped to bring Job into a spirit of discontent, and that he then would in passion rage against God. But Job was so content with his condition that he came to bless God, and he disappointed Satan of his hope. The devil shall cast some of you into prison. Revelation 2.10. Why does the devil throw us into prison? It's not so much that he wants to hurt our bodies as that he wants to molest our minds. That is his goal. He wants to imprison our contentment and disturb the regular motion of our souls. This is his design. It's not so much putting us into a prison as it is putting us into a passion that he attempts to do so. But by holy contentment, Satan loses his prey. He misses his intent. The devil has often deceived us. The best way to deceive him is by being content in the midst of temptation. Our contentment will discontent Satan. Oh, do not gratify our enemy. Discontent is the devil's delight. He wants us to be discontent. He loves to warm himself at the fire of our passions. Repentance is the joy of the angels, and discontent is the joy of the devils. As the devil dances at discord, he sings at discontent. The fire of our passions makes the devil a bonfire. It is a kind of heaven to him to see us torturing ourselves with our own troubles. But by holy contentment, we frustrate him of his purpose and confound and confuse him. The fifth motive to be content is that by contentment a Christian gains victory over himself. For a person to be able to rule his own spirit is the most noble conquest of all. Passion denotes weakness. To be discontent is suitable to flesh and blood, but to be in every state content, reproached yet content, imprisoned yet content, this is beyond nature. This is some of that holy valor and chivalry that only a divine spirit is able to infuse. To have a calm and patient spirit in the midst of the affronts and changes of the world is a conquest worthy of the garland of honor. Holy Job, stripped of everything, left his scarlet robe and embraced the dunghill, a sad catastrophe, yet he had learned contentment. It is said he fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Job 1.20. One would have thought he would have fallen on the ground and blasphemed, but no, he fell and worshipped. He adored God's justice and holiness. Behold the strength of grace. Here was a humble submission, yet a noble conquest. He got the victory over himself. It is no great matter for a person to yield to his own passions. This is easy to do. But to content himself in denying himself, this is sacred. The sixth great motive to work the heart to contentment is the consideration that all God's providence, no matter how difficult or bloody, will do a believer good. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Romans 8.28 Not only all good things, but also all evil things work for good. Should we be discontented about that which works for our good? Suppose our troubles are twisted together and full of sadness. What if sickness, poverty, reproach, and lawsuits unite and muster their forces against us? All will work for good. Our maladies will be our medicines. Will we grieve over that which will undoubtedly do us good? Unto the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. 
Psalm 112, 4. Affliction may be called Mara. It is bitter, but it is physical. Because this is so full of comfort, and may be a most excellent remedy against discontent, I will expand on this some. It may be asked how the evils of affliction work for good. There are several ways. First, they are disciplinary. Afflictions teach us. The psalmist, having very elegantly described the church's trouble in Psalm 74, prefixed the title Maskil to the psalm, which signifies a psalm that gives instruction. That which gives instruction works for good. God sometimes puts us under the black rod, but it is a rod of discipline. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? Micah 6, 9. God makes our adversity our university. Affliction is a preacher. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa. Jeremiah 6, 1. The trumpet was to preach to the people. Be thou instructed, O Jerusalem. Jeremiah 6, 8. Sometimes God tells the minister to lift up his voice like a trumpet. Isaiah 58, 1. Here he tells the trumpet to lift up its voice like a minister. Afflictions teach us humility. We are generally prosperous and proud. Corrections are God's corrosives to eat out the proud flesh. Jesus Christ is the lily of the valleys, Song of Solomon 2, 1. He dwells in a humble heart. God brings us into the valley of tears so that He may bring us into the valley of humility. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance, and is humbled in me. Lamentations 3, 19-20 When people grow too high and proud, God has no better way with them than to brew them a cup of bitter wormwood. Afflictions are compared to thorns, Hosea 2, 6. God's thorns are to prick the balloon of pride. Suppose a man runs at another with a sword to kill him, but accidentally it only stabs his abscess of pride. This does him good. God's sword is to let out the abscess of pride. Will that which makes us humble make us discontent? Afflictions teach us repentance. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised. I repented, and after that I was instructed. I smote upon my thigh. Jeremiah 31 18 to 19. Repentance is the precious fruit that grows on the cross. When distilling water from roses, the fire is put under the still, and then the water drops from the roses. Fiery afflictions make the waters of repentance drop and distill from the eyes. Is there here a reason to be discontent? Afflictions teach us to pray better. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. Isaiah 26, 16. Before they would say a prayer, now they poured out a prayer. Jonah was asleep in the ship, but awake and at prayer in the whale's belly. When God puts us under the firebrands of affliction, our hearts boil over even more. God loves to have his children possessed with a spirit of prayer. Never did David, the sweet singer of Israel, tune his harp more melodiously, never did he pray better than when he was on the waters. Afflictions improve the discipline of prayer. Will we be discontent with that which is for our good? Second, 
afflictions prove us. For thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Psalm 66, 10-11. Gold is not made worse by being tried and tested, or corn by being fanned. Affliction is the standard of sincerity. It tests what metal we are made of. Affliction is God's fan and His sieve, separating the grain from the chaff. It is good that people are revealed and known. Some serve God for the perks. They are like the fisherman who makes use of the net only to catch the fish. They go fishing with the net of religion only to catch advancement. Affliction reveals these people. Hypocrites will fail in a storm. True grace holds out in the winter season. Precious faith is that which, like the stars, shines brightest in the darkest night. It is good that our graces are brought to trial. When they are, we have the comfort and the gospel has the honor. Why then be discontent? Third, afflictions work for our good because they flush out sin. Should we be made discontent by this? What if I have more trouble but have less sin? The brightest day has its clouds, the purest gold its dross. The most refined soul has less of corruption but still has corruption. The saints lose nothing in the furnace except what they can spare, their dross. Is this not for our good? Why then do we murmur? I come to send fire on the earth. Luke 12:49. Tertullian understands this to be the fire of affliction. God makes this like the fire of the three children of Israel, which burned only their bonds and set them free in the furnace. Daniel 3, 24-25. The fire of affliction serves to burn the bonds of iniquity. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged, and this is all the fruit to take away his sin. Isaiah 27, 9. When affliction or death comes to the wicked, it takes away their soul. When it comes to the godly, it only takes away their sin. Is there any reason why we should be discontent? God steeps us in the briny waters of affliction so that He may soak out our spots. God's people are His husbandry, 1 Corinthians 3, 9. Plowing the ground kills the weeds, and harrowing the earth breaks up the hard clods. God's plowing of us by affliction is to kill the weeds of sin. His harrowing of us is to break the hard clods of unrepentance, so that our hearts may be more ready to receive the seeds of grace. If this is the reason, why should we be discontent? Fourth, afflictions both exercise and increase our grace. Afflictions exercise grace. They breathe our graces. Everything is at its best when it is most in use. Our grace, though it cannot be dead, may be asleep and has need of awakening. What a dull thing is the fire when it is hidden in the embers, or the sun when it is masked with a cloud. A sick man is living, but not lively. Afflictions awake and excite grace. God does not love to see grace in the eclipse. Faith puts forward its purest and most noble acts in times of affliction. God makes the fall of the leaf the spring of our graces. What does it matter if we are stricken, 
if our graces are more active. Afflictions increase grace. As the wind serves to increase and fan up the flame, so the windy blasts of affliction augment and fan up our graces. Grace is not consumed in the furnace, but it is like the widow's oil in the bottle which increased by pouring out. The torch, when it is beaten, burns brightest, and so does grace when it is exercised by suffering. Sharp frosts nourish the good corn, and sharp afflictions feed grace. Some plants grow better in the shade than in the sun, such as the bay and the cypress. The shade of adversity is better for some than the sunshine of prosperity. Naturalists observe that some cabbages thrive better when they are watered with salt water than with fresh. In the same way, some people thrive better in the salt water of affliction. Should we be discontent with that which makes us grow and produce more fruit? Fifth, these afflictions bring more of God's immediate presence into our souls. When we are most assaulted, we will be most assisted. I will be with him in trouble. Psalm 91, 15. It cannot be bad for the person whom God is supporting by his powerful presence and sweetening the present trial with his gracious presence. God will be with us in trouble not only to behold us, but also to uphold us, as he did with Daniel in the lion's den and the three children of Israel in the fiery furnace. What does it matter if we have more trouble than others, if we have more of God with us than others have? We never have sweeter smiles from God's face than when the world begins to look strange. Thy statutes have been my songs. Where? Not when David was on the throne, but in the house of my pilgrimage. Psalm 119.54 We read that the Lord was not in the wind, in the earthquake, nor in the fire. 1 Kings 19.11-12. But in a metaphorical and spiritual sense, when the wind of affliction blows on a believer, God is in the wind. When the fire of affliction kindles on him, God is in the fire to sanctify, to support, and to sweeten. If God is with us, the furnace will be turned into a festival, the prison into a paradise, and the earthquake into a joyful dance. Oh, why should I be discontent when I have more of God's company? Sixth, these evils of affliction are for good because they bring with them certificates of God's love and are evidence of His special favor. Affliction is the saint's uniform. It is a badge and cognizance of honor. That the God of glory should look on a worm and take so much notice of him that he would afflict him rather than lose him is a high act of favor. God's rod is a scepter of dignity. Job calls God's afflicting of us his magnifying of us. Job 7.17 For some, prosperity has been their shame, but for others, affliction has been their crown. Seventh, these afflictions work for our good because they work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 That which works for my glory in heaven works for my good. We don't read in Scripture that our honor or riches work for us a weight of glory, but that our afflictions do. Should we be discontent with that which works for our glory? The heavier the weight of affliction, the heavier the weight of glory.
not that our suffering merits glory, as the Roman Catholics do wickedly explain. But though they are not the cause of our crown, afflictions are the way to it, and God makes us, as He did our captain, perfect through sufferings. Hebrews 2.10. Will not all this make us content with our condition? I beg you, do not look on the evil of affliction, but on the good. Afflictions in Scripture are called visitations. Job 7.18. The word in the Hebrew can be taken in a good sense as well as a bad. God's afflictions are friendly visits. See God's rod like Aaron's rod, blossoming, Numbers 17, 8, and Jonathan's rod with honey at the end of it, 1 Samuel 14, 27. Poverty will starve out our sins, and the sickness of the body will cure a sin-sick soul. So instead of murmuring and being discontent, bless the Lord. If you had not encountered such friction in the way, you might have rolled on into hell and never stopped.